everyone. Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to talk to you about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It is coming up quickly, and you're not going to want to miss it. Come see what the show is all about on June 23rd and 24th at the Chattanooga Convention Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Come try and test all things mobile hunting. I'm talking stands, sticks, platforms, saddles, e-bikes, arch equipment, you name it, we got it. I personally can't wait to start looking at some new stands and sticks. I'm looking to replace some of my old stuff, and I know there's going to be great equipment there from some of those vendors. Our goal is to put on the whitetail event of the summer to help you become the most efficient hunter in this upcoming season. Tickets are on sale now at the mobilehuntersexpo.com. And you know what? If you can't make the first show, then come out to the Northern Show at the Kalamazoo County Expo Center Kalamazoo, Michigan on July 28th and 29th. I can't wait to see you there. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, Custom Ammunition and Gunworks. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used a 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't believe. Oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. Uh. I just shot my Kentucky buck. by the outdoors i'm your host chris leppert and tonight i have a very special guest mr josh trollinger what's going on dude not much man i'm excited to be here hell Love yeah you. how how far of a drive did you have well thankfully you know i got to incorporate some business into this but it's <laughs> just over seven hours i think to get here so okay not yeah, bad not bad so you're closer than where i scouted then it was yeah, it yeah. was just a hair over eight yeah, you're to get there from where you're going to scout to where I live, probably an hour and a half to two hours. Oh, really? So it's just uh, where I live and direction of getting here versus probably the direction you went to get there. Yep, so. man. Not a lot of direct routes where I was. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a, a good thing, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it'll really. I totally could see what you were talking about with it being pretty thin. I and I'll never forget. So I went out there by myself, I drive out there, and I 
back my truck into a pull-off. I turn everything off and I look up and the sky's just way more clear there oh, yeah. than here. And then all of a sudden, like, the truck's making noises and I'm like, man, I hope there's, like, no meth heads or anything <laughs> around that need extra money for tomorrow. Yeah, so. it's, uh, it's definitely a different world. It, you know, my wife, being from California, always says, oh, you guys don't have mountains. There's no mountains in Missouri. What are the Ozark Mountains? It's like, go spend some time out there. It may not be the rock sheer face mountains that everyone pictures, but uh, it's definitely its own little ecosystem and world. You are not kidding. And I will say where I was, I would call it pretty gentle. Yeah. But I also looked some places up that are the sheer cliff faces and it ain't no joke. Um, I don't think it gets crazy tall. But it's still rugged. Yeah. Um, which I found a gorgeous piece of petrified wood out there. I, I don't know if I told you that. I'll have to show it to you later. Yeah. Um, so, anywho, um, give us a little background on yourself as far as um, how long you've been hunting, uh, you know, what got you into it, and just kind of tell us a little bit about your hunting. Man, I don't know if this podcast is long enough. But, <laughs> uh, so, I'm a Missourian, born and raised. Um, my father and grandfather kind of got me into hunting, and I would say that my initial start was probably three or four years old. Uh, I can remember going rabbit hunting. Um, so when I was a year old, I got my first beagle, and my grandfather raised Pearson Creek black and tan beagles. Wow. And that was our heritage. That was mine and his thing, and we raised beagles till I was 12. So all that small game is where I got started. I mean, it was, I can remember being seven or eight years old and driving my dad's 71 International Scout down a logging road. And the only thing I could do was reach the pedal and put it in drive and low, and then just let the motor pull it down. I couldn't accelerate, but my dad (laughs) would sit next to me and let me drive that down a logging road while we rabbit hunted and chased dogs and that sort of thing. But, um, nice. I, Luckily, I was nine years old when I got my hunter safety course completion. Me and my mom went and actually took it together because she didn't have hers at the time. And so my dad was like, well, why don't you go with him and you guys will get it together. So it was kind of weird because at that point in time, um, that was before Missouri started putting all the youth requirements in and all the rest of that. So when I got it at nine, I was able to hunt that next season. And then I had to set out three seasons because they locked it in. You had to be 12. Oh. to go hunting again for big game. Okay. So to deer hunt, turkey hunt, that sort of thing, you had to be 12. But you could do the but, small game thing? Right. And even though I had my hunter safety course, I couldn't chase big game until I was 12 again. So I got to taste Dang. the hunting at nine, killed a doe, my first deer ever, and then had to sit out and just tag along with my dad and not able to pack a gun and still went, but couldn't hunt until I was 12. And then... Got back into it, and, you know, now that the laws have changed, as long as you're, what, six in the state or something like that, you can hunt. But, yeah, I was 12, and I started showing interest in archery and told my dad, like, I want a bow. I want to learn to do this. And my dad was never an archery guy. He was a gun guy. Okay. So we went to the Bass Pro Shops in Springfield and bought a bear, whitetail or something, 40-pound bow, and, that got me started, bought my first tree stand, and we owned 
like a little seven acre parcel out 16 miles from town in the middle of nowhere. And so I would hang my tree stand and four foot off the ground and go sit in a tree stand by myself at 12 years old and hunt. And that was kind of, that kind of really got me going. And then as I got older, you know, through friendships and stuff with certain guys that were really good in archery, um, my best friend Pete kind of really got me into the archery side of things. And that's when, you know, I really found the passion to kind of hunt. And I guess it's no looking back ever since then. I've just been Anywhere I can go, anything I can chase, I'm I'm down. Amen to that, dude. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your um, your archery career. So archery is kind of it's a roadmap all over the place. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, I started when I was 12 shooting a bow. Um, similar story to most everybody. Didn't have somebody to teach me. Didn't understand what I was doing. Did all the things wrong. Did everything. <laughs> that you shouldn't do to learn archery. That's how I started. And then when I was 18 years old, my, my buddy said, Hey, you know, I, um, I shoot competitive archery a little bit. Like, why don't you go to Missouri state indoor with me or go to these? So then I started going not to compete, but just to go kind of see what it was about. And, but I was a, you know, baseball prodigy, you could say. And so I was focusing my attention and, the athletic side of things and went on to play baseball in college and, and tried on from there. But, um, so my true target archery in life didn't really start until like 2010. And then, uh, one of the guys that was running a bow shop where I was living at the time, I started shooting a lot more and started joining leagues and they brought up, Hey, there's an ASA in Paris, Texas. You ought to go shoot that with us. And I was like, what is that? So, <laughs> It kind of spurred the interest, and for the next two years, I kind of started at the bottom of the amateur ranks and tried to work my way in and got pretty decent and got pretty excited about it and then took a job relocation to Kansas, and so that kind of shut the archery back down for me because I didn't know anybody. I hadn't met the people there to travel with, and you know what used to be a eight- or nine-hour trip to any archery tournament that I wanted to go to nationally or, you know, Missouri's full of local weekend shoots, um, just kind of got shut down again. And then I finally, you know, met up with some people at a local archery shop, got to know them pretty good, got to realize there's quite a few shooters in the area that like to travel. And about 2013, I guess it was, we started picking back up and I really started you know, like you and I have discussed, bought all my own tools, bought all my presses, yeah. did everything I needed to do and really said, all right, I'm, I'm either going to learn and get good at this and try to realize, can I do something with this? Am I good enough to play the game? Or I'm just going to go back to hunting. And, you know, I was fortunate to bounce around in the, the amateur ranks and did okay. And then one of my buddies just said, hey, man, you, you shoot well. I know you judge well from some of the tournaments we go to. Why don't you just go semi-pro and start playing the game like you should? So about 2019, I guess it was, I jumped into the semi-pro ranks, um, got my teeth kicked in real quick. (laughs) Oh, dude. And then 2020 just started working on the judging aspect more than the shooting, and all of a sudden I found myself at the end of the year on a podium at the Classic and setting fourth for shooter of the year and the top two guys got bumped to the pro class and I was 
I think like four hundred dollars away from winning my way out of semi pro and wow it uh kind of made me realize all right maybe I should actually start putting some effort to this and you know the cliche once you realize that maybe I got something then you all of a sudden take a nosedive and target oh, yeah. panic sets in and so yeah so it's been a it's been you know a long path but it's been a fun path so dude the the target panic thing is almost like when somebody's battling cancer or something like it's it's so rough to overcome i know it's not actually cancer so right. somebody's gonna write me and be like how dare you <laughs> compare that to cancer like yeah. it's just weird because if there's if you know anything about target panic truly and if you've went through it there's just this sad somber feeling with everybody oh, where you're like i feel you dude i feel your pain this but sucks. there's that silver lining too because it's <clears> like you know those moments of greatness come back out and you're like yes I, I, i've got this controlled i'm gonna I'm going to put it behind me. And then five targets later, it's like, where'd you come back? <laughs> like, could you go back the other way? Like what just happened? And so have you yeah. tried diving deep into different things like with your diet or anything like that? So ironically enough, um, a year ago this past March, uh, my travel partner, Remington Boyer and I were headed to, uh, Fort Benning, Georgia for the ASA. Okay. And we made it to Chattanooga, Tennessee. <clears throat> Good city. And I, not being aware of, I guess, the effects of caffeine, um, I'd never had any issues with caffeine. I uh, had a caffeine-induced anxiety attack yes, driving sir. down the highway. And I have not had caffeine in a year. I have cut caffeine completely out. Um I don't drink sodas anymore. I don't drink hardly anything carbonated. So I've really dove into kind of the holistic, natural, like sure. putting the right stuff in your body. And I can tell a difference. Um, but with all that being said, it's like my good days are tremendous. But I have learned that uh, when you throw two babies in the mix and... Oh. The busy life of being a dad now and changing jobs at the end of uh, 21, 22-ish. Yeah, 21. Um, and then my dad, who recently just passed away in November, um, having a mom who had cancer come back for like the third or fourth time now. So I had this culmination of all of these things. Oh, yeah. A lot on the mind. I've realized how big the mental aspect of the world has played into my archery game. And so I'm really trying to get my health back. Um, I started a program uh, end of March and I'm down just over 30 pounds in a month. Good for you. Um, in a month? In a month. Yeah. Be right nice. at 30, 31 pounds in a month. A month will be this Saturday. So depending on how this week turns out, I'll be. What kind of program are you doing? The Optavia. Um, I haven't heard or of Optavia. That. Depends Op on who okay. you. So I think there's a few people that we're friends with jointly that um, would one of those be Satterfield? No, he's doing that. Uh, I think Aaron did. I know his wife. I think really. I just I'm saw to think a name of, pop uh, up that did it. Oh man, he's like a big filmer. Um, I feel like his name might be Hunter too. I'm gonna have to I'll have to look him up on Facebook. But the dude, 
literally lost like an entire human body, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. He's like holding his pants out the other day, and I'm like, like when we were first friends on Facebook, bro, like you're a big boy. Yeah. And now like you're trim, man. So Rod White is who got me into it. And okay. he's a everyone kinda knows what Rod in the archery world, I mean, Olympic gold medalist, you know, he's done the whole black rack and deer science thing and um he kinda turned me on to it. So my goal turning forty this year in March was I got two babies. I got a family. I've got a great future. It's time to get the health back. Pro- and, prolong the life and yeah. be around and, yeah. and feel feel good. I feel you. Do you feel yeah. that weight and stuff in your joints and everything? I mean, oh, is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah same. It's, it's already, I've already noticed it. The sad part is I've been here before. I was bigger than I am now, bigger than I was, you know, with this 30-pound loss back in 2016, and I lost 72 pounds in five months. Damn. Um, but then that was before being a dad and being sure. a husband and being back to the road life and I've let life kind of take over. So, yeah, I mean, it's trying to get the health back, trying to get everything, not only for just me personally and my family, but, you know, for the hunting world, for the archery sure. world, it's, you know, when you're pushing the limit of your hunting gear, it makes you go, well, is this really safe? Am I doing this right? And even though I know it's, how things are tested that I'm okay. Right. It's still just, it's that pucker factor, you know. (laughs) You aren't kidding. The other thing is, man, like, I feel so much better just being down seven pounds. Yeah. Like, you can feel it when you go through them hills and and all Uh, that. And then the other thing is, the fatigue factor and everything starts to drop a little bit. And I believe... Because I played around with this a lot, trying to just gain some kind of edge in the archery world myself. And um, I remember specifically, like, it, like, kicked me in the feels when you were talking about caffeine. Oh, yeah. Because I had to remove that. Like, I didn't stop drinking caffeine, but, like, the day before a tournament, no caffeine. During the tournament, no caffeine. Because that, for whatever reason, it literally creates anxiety and it's it's not the kind where you're like afraid or something but when you're at full draw it's anticipation it basically makes you do stupid shit (laughs) i mean yeah and you're like why did i even do that what are you thinking your focus isn't quite there well my focus wasn't quite there and i just do the dumbest things and and then after the shot i'm like chris what are you doing yeah and so I got into the the routine where after every single target, I'd take a bite of something, whether it was mm-hmm. like a couple peanut M&Ms to bump the glucose um, or a little bit of jerky or just something. Um, and then I'd, I'd drink probably, when it was warm out, probably about a half a bottle of water. And then, of yeah. course... Everybody knew who I was on the archery course because I was pissing every target by about target four. <laughs> I'm like, I gotta pee. So yeah, I've really played with, um, you know, uh, there was a, a phase there where I was trying, you know, Rio Wild was doing a lot of things, and there was different archers that were testing all this stuff. And then like, you know, I've watched Danny Evans drop all this weight and how he's really picked up in performance and do things, and it's like. There is a huge correlation to 
the caffeine, what it does to your body, the dehydration part of it. You know, that's one of the things that people don't realize. And, and I've done so much research on this personally because I drink a lot of water as it was, but like every eight ounce, whatever you drink with caffeine takes two to three times that to replace it with water yeah. to get it right. And so, yep. you know, you start looking at muscle fatigue and, and everybody's built differently. Some people don't succumb to all that. You know, they're just freaks of nature, but <laughs> I realized that, you know, I'm drinking almost a gallon of water in a 20 target day while I'm oh, out yeah. there and I'm eating, you know, a few handfuls of nuts. Like you're talking about every target, like every other target, just eating something to keep the blood sugar level, to not have the insulin spikes, to not whatever it takes. And, you know, I've went as far as, you know, I remember back in the um, world archery days, probably, you know, early 2000s, one of the things they would do is put uh, heart meters on Rio and some of these guys when they were shooting world archery stuff. And so I started tracking just through an iWatch at home, let alone a, a tournament, like what is my heart rate doing? And I would document in my practice session, Dang. like what's happening, where, you know, is my heart rate rising? Is it lowering? And what was weird, what I found was when I was younger and I didn't have an iWatch then, but I had like a heart rate pedometer thing that tracked heart rate and steps my heart rate would go down when i was shooting it was almost like i became iced and like my hands would feel cold and i remember this like 10 15 years ago when i first started this and then now that i'm older and out of shape and overweight all of a sudden right. i'm sweating my hands are slick <laughs> my heart rate's jumping 20 beats and Little then i slick hands it's like why was there this 30 second segment on this target that my heart rate jumped 20 beats and it's like that's when the the panic and the caffeine and all that kind of stuff took over so have i really dove into the science side of things i mean yes and no but i've just realized that some of it's not helping so sure. if i can cut it out and it helps so yeah. be it and with the whole anxiety thing, man, it's just changing my diet and changing the way that I've lived has just, man, it's made life so much simpler. That's so crazy you talk about the anxiety too because I didn't start drinking any kind of coffee at all until 2018. Yeah. And I specifically remember uh, I started on these like uh, cafe mochas. They've got like espresso in them. Mm-hmm. And I had one on my way home from Florida. And out of nowhere, I just felt afraid. And I was like trembling, jittery. And I'm like, what's going on? No, mm -hmm. I'm driving. Nothing's happening. It's nighttime. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I'm tripping balls over the, all this caffeine <laughs> I've been drinking. And so I cut that out. Yep. I just do regular black coffee now instead. And, it, and I can only have... X amount or yeah. oh yeah ow yeah. <laughs> it's not good I still drink decaf a little bit okay um, and I've switched to the iced version just because it takes me longer to drink it and I get to kind of enjoy it a little bit longer because I like the flavor of coffee I was same. the same way until I was like 32 or 33 oh, no, couldn't stand coffee yeah, didn't want coffee same. it's like all of a sudden I became an old man and I wanted coffee again you know it's uh it's weird but I did the same thing I had a five shot ice espresso oh. before I left town headed to Fort Benning and then had four glasses of sweet tea at lunch 
So I had like, you know, six times the healthy dose of caffeine in a five Ooh. hour period. I was 140 beats a minute sitting still driving down the highway and couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> so it, it changed me. Yeah. yeah What's going weird. on? Damn, man. Weird, but. So you may or may not have killed a pretty okay buck here. <laughs> I'm sitting here for those that haven't seen my post that I've posted on Facebook, uh, which it's April 19th. This won't drop for a little while. Um, but if you can remember me posting a picture uh, with our podcasting equipment and some bourbon and a gigantic deer um, with the, the rack and the skull cap, it is 197 and... Five-eighths green. Five-eighths yep. green. Um, absolute giant deer. So we've got... One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. So we've got a mainframe 12. Yep. Um, and then it's got kickers coming off the side of each G2. The one kicker is actually broken. And if I had to guess, did you know this deer before? No. Okay. No. I was going to say, it looks like that point was pretty significant. Um, I mean, we don't know for sure, but... There's a broken kicker on the right side G2, and it's it's pretty good size. The other one's a little small. This one is significant, like it could have carried for some inches and basically put the deer over 200 inches is where I'm going. Um, maybe it wouldn't have, but I guess we'll never know. Now, i got to hear the story about this thing, so <laughs> I'm going to let you just... You start from the beginning, and if I got questions, I'll pester you. All right. So it's kind of a it's a short story, but it's a unique story. Okay. So I've hunted this area in Kansas uh, since 2016. Um, no, sorry, 2011 when I moved out there. And I got real familiar with it. And I've always hunted public and private okay. in this area. Um, I was fortunate enough to have some good private ground, run a bunch of cameras, really had tabs on deer. This year in particular, um, I had a really nice deer last year that I wanted to kill and wanted to chase. And the wind never was right for me to hunt him. So I didn't. And so... I started bouncing around looking at other public areas um, because I wanted to give the, the farm that I had private some rest and not push it. And in doing that, I found a couple close public areas that I really wanted to hunt. Well, this year I go back out there in 22 um, to hunt again and I really didn't have a shooter that I felt like chasing on, on private. So I went back to a couple of my public spots and got on some really nice deer the first two days I was there. And uh, about halfway through the second day, a buddy of mine and I were, uh, we'd hunted, hunted together. And so we were sitting around just um, looking at Spartan Forge and Onyx and trying to decide like, where do we want to go? You know, we want to go back there. The wind's not going to be right. And he goes, hey, there's this new piece you know, like 10 miles north of the house, have you been up there? And I said, no, I haven't. And I looked at it and I said, well, it's kind of a unique piece of ground. I don't really, you know, it's not big. It's not, you know, 
going to hold a lot of people. I said, maybe we should just, I'll tell you what I said, I'll go up in the morning. I won't hunt. I'll just go up. I'll drive around glass from every corner that I can and really try to see. And then I'll put boots on the ground if I feel like, you know, there's a reason to be there and I'll go in and, you know, figure out there's one specific spot. There was an oxbow in the Creek. And I said, I'll go check this spot out. And if there's anything there worth hunting, it should hold some sign in that area. And, you know, I'll take off and get in and out of there quick so we can go back for an evening hunt. So I spent from daylight to say 8.30, just cruising around, getting on different high points, glassing, really, you know, kind of driving and stopping and glassing all this area. And finally about 8.30, I thought, you know, I seen this little forked horn come out of this oxbow and I thought, okay, there's deer came out of where I think I should go. I'm gonna walk in there and go see if I can, you know, find a spot that looks good and has the right amount of sign or else I'm going to leave and go scout some other places. And Can you describe the right amount of sign? Um, for me, that time of year, I mean, this was the first part of November. Okay. You know, I wanted to see <clears throat> a really good trail crossing on that creek somewhere and I wanted to in find... In the oxbow? In that oxbow okay. and I wanted to find some nearby bedding, something within a couple hundred yards of there that would possibly be a good bedding area and something that would hold some scrapes or, you know, good rubs. The typical, you know, if there's a big buck here, you're going to see it. Okay. But more importantly, I didn't really care about that because this time of year, those coming into estrus, I mean, there's no telling what's going to roam through there. <laughs> so for me, I was, I wanted to find a high traffic area, find some big tracks and know that there was something of value. Boy, did you prove that? Um, well, <laughs> what proved it was... I hadn't made it, I don't know, a quarter mile back into this parcel. And uh, I had an east wind that day, so I came in from the west. And when I left the truck, I thought, I'm not going to be gone half hour, 45 minutes, and I'm going to be walking, moving, glassing. So I put my wick, thermal top on, and a vest, pants, no base layers. And I'm talking, it's like, feels like it's 28 degrees outside with a stiff 20 mile an hour wind. But I'm like, I don't want to sweat. I don't want to leave any more scent than possible. I just want to get in and get out. So I'll deal with being cold. Well, I made it quarter mile in and right where that oxbow turns, I stopped in a super tall grassy area. It was kind of like buffalo grass okay. led around this creek and it was plowed fields on both sides of it. And so I, I stopped there and I wanted the glass, I could see some cedars and see some other stuff. And I just really wanted to take some time and, you know, make sure there wasn't something laying around there that I was just gonna bump. Well, little did I know, this guy's laying literally 10 yards in front of me under the creek bank. Oh, wow. And so I stopped, I'm glassing, obviously you can't smell me. And within, 10 seconds of me stopping and put the glass up, I hear the gravel and this creek just erupt. And this deer, 10 yards in front of me, comes out from underneath my feet and runs like 20 yards straight away from me and stops and about faces. Well, by the time he had done that, I had just laid flat on my belly in the grass. And so I'm looking at this deer through buffalo grass and he's looking and he's looking all around and he's trying to figure out what's going on and all I'm thinking is, don't try to shoot. 
It's too thick. You're not going to get an arrow through there. This deer does not know you exist. He thinks it could be a squirrel. He thinks it could be something else that startled so he, him. He hasn't smelled you. He hasn't smelled me. Okay. Thermals, everything is in my favor. There's no way this deer knows I'm there. So he turns and heads south. So I immediately pull you the map a, up. You have an east wind? East wind, oh, and he's so headed south, and I'm on the west side. Bulletproof. Oh, yeah. So I'm watching him go south, and the creek turns, and I see him duck into the timber. And so I immediately look at my map, and I've never been on this piece of ground. God, so I'm literally just, got just standing all there. The golden nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> he just gave himself up. So I look at it, and I realize that the way this creek turns and the way he turned into the creek, there's a thick grass field that leads right back to where he's bedded. And when he stopped, he's 300 yards away from me. And so I'm thinking, he's going to circle back. He's going to try to get downwind of what he smelled and figure out what it is. So I move back west and move to this pinch point to where if he comes up the creek, the creek's only 30 yards wide. He can't get east of me without me seeing him. If he's probably not dumb enough, but if he circles out into that switchgrass that's three, four foot tall and goes out in the field. He can't get out there without me seeing him. And there just happens to be a perfect blowdown right there. So I just tuck myself up in it. Now I'm carrying my bow. I didn't leave the bow in the truck. Thank God. Because uh, you never know what you might stumble upon, my right? God. So I, um, I go back myself in this downfall and I drop some milkweed, check the wind, check the thermals. Everything's great. And I'm like, all right, if he comes back, I'm going to give him as long as I can take it. Now, let me stop you for a second yeah. because, so you said he ran south, you were yep. on the west side. Did he go downstream? He went down. Downstream, yep. so he basically now, went Granted, down. this was dry, the creek's dry. Okay. It had pockets of water, you More know. More than likely went wind to back. Uh, uh, if, well, you've got a stiff 20 mile an hour. Yeah, he was sorry, crosswind. So never mind. He was running uh, crosswind, but okay. it was a quicker access because where he come out of, he would have had to went back in and out of the creek, whereas now he can just go across this switchgrass field and head south. Okay. And come to find out, um, and I'll explain it soon and you'll understand the whole chess game pieces of it, but he went down there and when he tucked back into the creek, he tucked back in so he wasn't visible in the wide open. That's why he did it. But he had no intentions of coming back. But I didn't know that. Some of these big bucks you hear about, you know, this whole bump and dump scenario and they yeah. circle back and whatever else. So immediately that's what I thought. So I tried to get to a pinch point where I knew there's zero way if he was within 50 yards to 100 yards either side of me, I was going to see this deer. Yeah. I sat in this downfall for two hours. To the oh. point that I couldn't feel my feet. I was shivering. By, and I thought, I can't even make a shot if this deer comes back. Because number one, I'm too cold. Number two, the adrenaline that's going to take over at that point. I won't even probably be able to get my my bow yeah, back. You'd be shaking like crazy. So I thought, he ain't been here. It's an hour and a half, almost two hours. I'm getting out of here. So I cut out, went straight back to the truck, marked where I found his bed. And then I called my buddy and I said, look, when you get off work at noon, you need to be here get showered, get cleaned, let's get our clothes, get everything loaded up. We need to be there no later than 1.30. He's like, oh, don't get dark. I said, I don't care. We need to be there at 1.30. We need to get back in there early because one, we got three-eighths of a mile from the truck to get to where I'm going to hunt this deer. And I'm going to probably take an hour to go that long. Yeah. 
I said, if he gets back in between this five-hour gap when I leave him, I want to be able to know he's there. So we did that. We got in there. We finally got up a tree at about 3 o'clock, and it gets dark at like 7.30, 7.50. I don't know. It's almost 8 o'clock that time of year still because I'm in, you know, the western part of the central time zone, so it still stays pretty light. Uh, okay. But so we get in there. We're... You know, we climb up the tree. He is absolutely livid with me on the tree that I picked because he was like, you know, I'm going to film whatever. And I told him, I said, if you go with me, you know, I'm giving you first choice. Do you want to shoot or do you not? He said, no, no. I mean, if he comes in, I want you to shoot him. Well, when I saw this deer, I told him, I said, I don't know. I mean, he's he's a 170-inch deer probably. (laughs) I mean, I'm looking at him through switchgrass you know 30 yards away i said he's pretty good buck and he said all right well you know whatever so we sat there all night um didn't see a single deer until about 5 45 i think it is and i'd been glassing south i mean i was just pegged on where i last saw him i was not giving that spot up and i told him i said you watch everything east and north i'll watch everything south well we had a little doe or something come in behind us, so we turned around and we were looking at her, looking at that deer or whatever it was, and we were talking, and I just happened to turn back and look, and he's standing in the wide open, 150 yards in the middle of a cut bean field. And I'm oh like, my God. I don't know where he came from. I don't know how he got out there. I, and he's looking like in that area still where he was bedded that morning. And I know he's just thinking, okay, what was in there? What spooked me? This is the first time I've been back. And I know he's still thinking about it, even though it's been seven hours since I bumped him. And he's like, takes a few steps, stops and looks. And he's not looking at us because I'm not where he was bedded. I'm a hundred yards east of there where the creek turns back and there's like a nice pinch point and there's a bunch of cedars and there's a big uh, kind of a little ridge. I mean, in Kansas, there's not a whole lot of big hills. So but there was a, a nice rise there. And so I thought, man, this is a perfect pinch that if anything comes through here, they, they either got to go up into the cedars or they got to come through this pinch. And when I got up the tree, I hadn't ventured that way at all to keep from leaving scent. So as I look five yards to the side of the tree, I noticed there's this beat down path that comes out of those cedars and goes right along the edge of that rise and comes right underneath me at five, four and a half yards actually. And so I, I see him out there and I tell Gary, I'm like, man, get your, get the camera going, like get things ready. Like he's there. I'm going to grunt him over. And it's so windy that I mean, when I'm talking about, you're almost cracking the reed on a grunt call to blow it loud enough. I was scared that I was going to make a noise that I couldn't make because no matter how hard I blowed it, he wouldn't even look. I mean, I just kept blowing this call and he wouldn't even look and finally the third time i just let her rip and i mean he locked up bristled and whipped his head over and looked and turned 45 degrees facing us just staring in the hole and i'm like he's coming and here he comes on a string and i'm like all right and all of a sudden he gets and i told gary i said i'm not going to look at this deer i'm going to focus on this hole where he's got to come through i don't want to stare at him on the way in here right let me know when he's close and he goes he disappeared and I said what and I look up and I catch sight of him going behind the cedar into these cedars and I'm like 
what just happened? So this deer disappears again, out of my life, disappears. And we sit there for another two hours, never see him. And I mean, there's a one hole that I can see through the cedars that if he crosses in those cedars, I can see him cross. And I stared at that hole. I don't think I blinked for an hour and a half. Huh. And he never crossed it. So it gets dark. And I told him, I said, you know, what's your plan? You coming back tomorrow or not? He said, no, I got to work. I said, all right, we'll pull, let's pull your stuff. You just get down. I will lower it down a piece at a time to you. Don't make any noise. Wrap it up quietly. We're going to get in the creek bottom and take the creek bottom all the way back to the truck and get out of here. I said, so I don't want no headlamps, no nothing. You can just follow me out. I'll hold your hand, whatever we got to do. <laughs> I don't want to make a sound. I don't want this thing to know we exist. And so we get out of there. I come back the next morning, you know, sleepless night, like, you know, now I've seen this deer twice in the same day. Had him within bow range both times. Gosh, But dude. cannot get a shot at him. I mean, I wasn't going to shoot him at 50 or 60 yards with a 20-mile-an-hour wind. Right. You know, if it was calm and he stood there, that's a different story. But so next morning I get in there, and this is where the story gets kind of fun. I crawl, up my, I crawl up my stand and get locked in or crawl up my sticks, get locked in my saddle, get on my platform and get everything set up. And I said, you know what? I'm not dragging the camera gear. I'm not dragging anything because the last thing I want to do is screw this up. So I left everything and I normally put a GoPro up no matter what to at least be able to capture, you know, a wide field of view. And I just thought, I'm not even messing with it. I'm not getting anything out. I'm just going to hang out. So at eight o'clock that morning, no, like seven, a little after seven, it had only been daylight for an hour or so. This eight pointer comes in behind me, six pointer or something, it was a small basket rack deer, comes in behind me, comes right down on a completely different trail to the base of my tree as I'm right on the creek bank, goes right over my ground scent, turns, goes right over 20 yards from me, walks back towards the tree and beds down 15 yards from the tree. Mm. And I'm like, I'm screwed. Yep. There's no way I'm going to sit here till God knows when, because I had no plans of leaving. I took lunch, food, everything, water. I'm not leaving. I'm staying till dark because this guy's been through here twice. There's a great chance he's going to come back through again. Sure. Because he still doesn't know I'm there. He's never smelled me. He's never saw me. I mean, he heard something the first morning, but whatever. So I'm sitting there watching this buck for, I know, an hour. And finally he stands up and he walks over about 30 more yards to the point of where the creek, the timber, and this big cedar thicket meet and beds back down and turns away from me and faces northeast kind of into the wind. And I'm like, thank God. Now he's away from me. I don't have to worry about my thermals changing and dropping yeah. on his head. Nothing. And so... It wasn't like 10 minutes later, I dropped some milkweed and my thermals go right down into the creek, right where he was almost bedded. And I'm like, thank God he moved. So he's laying there and all of a sudden at like nine o'clock, this guy steps out of the cedars right where he'd went in, turns and looks back to, his, to the west where I had bumped him the day before and takes off in a dead run south again. What um, what time did you say you had the thermal switch? Uh, right at probably 8 or 8.30. And you saw him at 9? I saw him at 9. 
If anybody's listening, this was my biggest lesson this year. That thermal switch is like the gospel of the Lord. Oh, yeah. It's like when you see deer move, more often than not, if there wasn't a wind switch, you had a thermal switch. Yep. And they now have either been forced out or they wanted to move but waited for yep. a wind advantage. And it's it's a thing, man. Yep. <laughs> it cracks me up. As soon as you said that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. What time? What yep. time was it? And what's weird is where I was set up, that cedar shelter belt type hill blocked my wind or blocked the wind a little bit so my thermals were falling due north into the creek bed dropping into where the water was but my wind was blowing straight east and we still had a 20 mile hour wind and it was i don't know in the 30s i mean it was cold so you had an east wind for two days for two days straight two days straight on never had that in kansas i've never had it you know i'll bet (laughs) i would be willing to bet that's probably bleh, probably why he was where he was and yep. stayed where he was because yep. he felt safe and that wasn't those east winds. God, this is cool. Keep going. Yep. So he runs straight south and I watch him go, I know, a half a mile because I can see through all these cut fields glassing. When he come back out, you know, the second time I saw him the night before, I was like, that deer's bigger than 170. <laughs> Like, he's, I mean, Gary and I look, looked at each other, and I'm like, dude, he's probably, he's got to be 180-inch deer. He's like, oh, you know, you're probably more like mid-170s. He said, he's he's good. I'm like, all right. Well, he comes back out, and I get to watch him, you know, in this dead run for probably a quarter of a mile, and then he stops, checks a scrape line that's right there, and then just walks fast for the next quarter. And I'm looking at this deer, and immediately I just hung all my stuff up, hung my bow up, sat down in my saddle. And I picked up my phone. I turned around. Buck still bedded right there. Never moved. Wow. And I, I'm, just like I'm talking to you, I'm talking on my phone because he can't hear me. It's so windy. And I'm like, I called my buddy. I said, dude, he's back. I just saw him again. And I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to tear this set down and I'm going to move over there in that gap of the cedars. I can see one tree in there that's not a cedar tree i don't know what it is but i think it's a big elm or something i was like but i think i can get in it and if he does the same thing he's gonna come right back and he's like well what do you think i said well i can't do nothing until this buck gets up and leaves and that buck killed this buck hands down that's the only reason i killed this buck because if he had been gone i would have got down and it would have screwed the whole gig up but because that buck didn't get up I stayed put. 40 minutes later, I look up and this deer's on a string coming right back to me. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of Saddie's loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddie's fatty. And also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with 
any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs, go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. And I'm like, oh, and I'm still on the phone. Like, I was talking to him. I'm like, oh, my God, he's coming back. I got to go get off the phone because everybody's texting me because I told a few friends of that before what I'd found. Have you killed him yet? Have you seen him yet? Whatever. You know, I sent a few texts like, <laughs> yeah, I saw him. Can't kill him. But, you know, I've seen him four times now. And uh, all of a sudden, here he comes back. So I'm ready. I get everything set up. I got the tree in between me and him. And I'm like, he's coming. And he goes right back into that cedar patch. And I can't shoot him again. Oh, my God, dude. And I'm like, at this point, I just want to jump out of the tree. I'm furious. And I hang my stuff up, and I turn around, and I look at that buck, and I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, that young buck just jumps up, and his head whips into the cedars, and he about faces and comes right underneath me and heads south, just like that deer did the day that I bumped him. And I mean, didn't like run, but it was like, dad's back in town, and I got to go. And yeah. he walked off. And I immediately went, all right, he's there. So I faced into the wind or faced away from the wind and went as loud as I could and just roared. And then I turned back around and went bat, 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 like I was tending a doe. And all of a sudden I could just hear this commotion. I look up and I can see this cedar tree just going all over the place. And you can still see some of the yes stuff in the antlers. And he's just <clears throat> demolishing this tree. And I'm like, oh, I got you now. And I pick my bow up and I get turned, I get ready. And I'm ready for him to come out, and he steps out at 20 yards facing me. And I'm like, oh, come on, dear God, please just come over here. I, I want, I, just give me a shot. And he turns about face and walks right over to where that deer was bedded and smells that deer. And I'm like, oh, you're not getting away. And I lengthen my tether out. And I'm talking, I'm 45 degrees leaned out off this tree as far as I can go on Giving my tether. Giving yourself to the Lord. Try, oh yeah, I mean, if I'd have <laughs> fell, I'd have been like a pendulum and slung underneath my stand. Yep. But I thought, I, when you turn sideways, you're 32 yards from me. I ranged you. I'm going to put something in you. Yeah. And I no longer got that thought in my head and he about faced right back at me. And I thought, I'm busted. And he started walking there's nothing I can do because there's no way I'm going to be able to shoot him underneath me Are at the angle. Draw? Nope. I'm uh, still holding it. And so he stops, reaches his head back to scratch his butt. And I grab my tether, pull myself up, get locked into the tree. And thank God, here's the fun part of the story. That morning, for whatever reason, this is the target archery side of myself. I'm looking at that trail and I'm like, that trail says four and a half yards on my rangefinder, or said nine oh, yards I on my where this is going. nine yards on my rangefinder. That trail's not nine yards. That thing's like four and a half, maybe five. So I turn off the angle compensation, put it on straight line. It's four and a half yards, and I'm like, okay. Grab my phone, pull out Archer's Mark, go to my hunting bow setup. Four and a half yards. Click it again. It's a 52 degree angle at that trail i'm like that's steep so i look at it and or it was 40 48 degree angle it was steep 51 somewhere in that range anyway i had to set my sight at 52 yards okay i was going to guess 45 to be able to shoot at that angle at that distance 
So I dialed my sight as I'm standing against this tree to 52 yards. He comes up, there's a sapling about 10 yards from me, stops, kind of looks around and looks back behind him towards where that buck was bedded. I come to full draw. He continues to walk, gets literally four and a half yards right next to me and pauses like it was meant for him to die. And I, at that point, was already in the click in my release and I just started pulling and I'm aiming right in between the shoulder blades, just like I'm going to take the lungs, the heart, hopefully hit the spine. I'm going to drop him right here. And I mean, the shot broke probably the best unanticipated non-target panic shot I've ever <laughs> made in my life and punches him right through berries into the brisket. And I see it stop at the fletchings and it was like an eruption. Like I had hit an artery or something and blood just exploded out of the top of his back. What broadhead? I was shooting a uh, thorn rift 2.2. So that would be an expandable. That's an expandable. Okay. Yep. How do you like um, those? I absolutely love them because they are the only enclosed, fully concealed, yeah. expandable broadhead. It's like shooting a field point when you're practicing. And I can put a collar or on them where they will not open. So I can shoot that exact same broadhead to tune the exact same arrow instead of shooting a practice point on an arrow, taking the practice point off, even if it's a broadhead practice point and then screwing a real broadhead on. Right. I know that every arrow with the broadhead combination is shooting a bullet hole through paper and hits the target of where I want to hit. And I've shot these things out to 110 yards and I've shot baseball size groups with them at 110. Man, I that's mean, pretty nice. I know they'll fly. So Now, what's your draw length? Uh, I am 32 on the nose. Jesus for my target bow and then I shoot the hunting bow I was shooting this year was a Bowtech Solution SS which only goes to 31 but I over rotated the cams compressed the cables got an extra <laughs> half three-eighths of an inch out of it okay and then I shot um, 32 and an eighth off the loop so I was a little short as far as the string angle goes but it all fit. It all worked. I could shoot good groups with it. Um, <clears throat> okay. But yeah, so the scary part was I pinwheel this deer. He takes off. I immediately grab another arrow and I'm watching blood just flow. And I'm like, this is awesome. I got him. And he runs a 270 degree circle around me. And I'm like, there's 60 yards. There's 100 yards. There's 150. And then he hits the bean field behind me and keeps going. And I'm like, okay, he's made it to the other grassway. He disappeared in the grass. And so I immediately pull Onyx out and I make a track the way you run. I'm like, that deer just went 300 yards. And my mind went, oh my God, he's only got a half a mile to go north and he's on private. Oh my so God. So I bail out of the tree, run back to the truck, jump in the truck, scream down the road, scream to the north end. And there's two trails that come out of the north end of that property. And I park my truck sideways in the middle of the road, dead center of both, uh, both trails and go stand behind my truck. And I think if he makes it to the road, I'm putting another one in him before he goes on to private. Cause if he, or I'll scare him back onto public, whatever I can do. Right. If he gets to private, who knows if they're going to let me go get him. Sure. And then it's the whole saga of having to get a game warden involved and all right. that stuff. So long story short, finish this up. 
I waited four hours for Jeff Rainey and my buddy Gary to show up to go help me recover this deer. You waited four hours to go look? Four hours. So, dude. <laughs> now, let me say this. After I had waited about two and a half, almost three hours, Gary shows up. I told Gary, I said, look, I'm not pushing this, and Gary's colorblind, so he can't see blood anyway. Oh, God. He's just there to help me drag him out or find... Moral support. Yeah. So, and, and he knows that that's what he's there for. So, we go up there, and I'm like, look, I just want extra eyes so that if I bump him, you know it, and you can help me. I said, I'll look for the blood, but I'm going to go to the field edge where I last saw him go into the buffalo grass and see if we can find blood. If we can't find blood... We're going to walk a half circle back to the truck away from him and we're going to wait for Jeff. And then Jeff will help you two can blood trail and I'll try to stay out in front of you so that if you guys coming through there bumping, maybe I can get another shot because he'll be hurt enough and he won't be able to get off or I'll see him get up because he sees you guys, whatever. And like, I'll just try to stay out. So we ended up, he had a really good blood trail back to the bean field. We could see fresh muddy running tracks big tracks the only set that had been out there followed it over there jeff and i finally found blood in the in the grass and got over to the next edge of the creek another 50 60 yards to the grass and i said look i'm gonna go upwind or crosswind of him stay out of the wind and get all the way up on the other side of this hill and let you guys trail him and that way if he's between us and you know each other i'll see him get up whatever did that, climbed up on top of this mound. I'm just watching them. And at this point, I hadn't really glassed to look for him. And they're coming down, coming down. And I see them start to turn as the creek turns. And I'm like, all right, he went north. And I just happened to turn and look. And I can see his horn sticking up out of the grass. And I'm like, no way. You know, it's one of those moments like take your glasses down, rub your eyes, sure. put your binos back up, clean your binos. Am I really seeing this or is my mind playing tricks? And then at that point I saw him and I, you know, hooted real loud and told them I'd found him. And they're like, did you find him? I'm like, I did, I did. And it got even better. I wish Jeff had been rolling the camera at this point. There's a log in the grass that I'm standing on top of this little like 12 foot rise. And I catch my toe on that tree and tumble all the way down this <laughs> hill to the creek. Jeez. And I uh, saved the bow. And Gary said, you looked like a drunk saving your beer. He's like, you <laughs> held your bow up the whole time you fell. I said, well, yeah, it's more important than me. So, But, and then we got to go put our hands on him. And, you know, I told Gary that morning, I said, he's a 190 inch deer. Like, yeah. He's there, man. And he's like, oh, you know, I really don't know. And. I told Jeff, I said, he showed up. He said, how big is he? Because we didn't have no pictures. We have nothing. I mean, I killed this deer 20, 26 hours later from the time I bumped him to putting an arrow in him. So kind of a bump and dump, kind of a heated mess. But he, he said, how big do you think he is? I said, honestly, I said, I don't know about the mass, but dude, he's got to push 200 inches. I said, he's in the 190s all day, no doubt. He's like, oh, come on. You got big eyed. And I said, okay. So we walked over there and we got, you know, the recovery and all that on video. And he looked at me and he said, you may not be wrong. (laughs) I said, 
I mean, I've killed a couple big deer. I said I ain't killed nothing in the 190s, but I've killed a 186, and this deer's bigger than 186, like, by a bunch. Yeah. So, but yeah, and then we took him back, and I told Jeff, I said, I'm going to go eat lunch. You can score him. You've scored a bunch of deer. Don't tell me what it is. I'll come back and score him. And we had two measurements that were different, but they were like opposite different. Mine was heavy on one measurement. His was heavy on a different. And we both green scored him at 197 and 58. Wow. So he's, he's a tank. That is a big ass deer. And again, the kicker off the right side G2. Oh yeah. Puts that deer over 200 inches, but it's broken. So. Well, and the, the ironic part to this whole story is the farmer that lets me hunt out there, um, was so ecstatic. He's kind of like my dad. I mean, he's yeah. In some aspects, I mean, he tells everyone when he introduces them, he introduces me as a son. Like oh, we nice. have that type of relationship. And if he's looking for another son, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I took pictures, me and him took a picture together, and so I put it as a screensaver on his phone for him. And so he's showing it to everybody, and he's eating lunch at the local bar and grill that we have there in town, and. Uh, He's showing this deer to a guy, and uh, he said, well, that's the guy that owns the ground that put it in Weehaw. And he's like, oh, really? And so he walks over there, and he says, hey, I, I hear you own the Weehaw up by such and such. And he goes, yeah. He said, have you seen this deer? And he shows him. He goes, well, I wondered where that deer went. I ain't seen him in almost two months. He said, yeah. He said, my, wow. my uh, son, as I call him, killed him. He said, Wow, he said, I remember that fork being a lot bigger on that side. Yeah. And I said, oh, boy, don't tell me that. Yeah. I said, you don't have a picture of it, do you? And he said, no, I don't have a picture of it. I said, Damn well, that it. sucks. I'd like to see him. But I did through a, a bow hunter group. I had a guy send me a picture of this deer who had a Tacticam trail cam on the same piece of property one hour before I shot this deer. They no got him way. on the camera. And his comment to me was, I guess I should have zigged when I zagged. And I guess they had been hunting this deer, had been on this deer. And here I walk in and 26 hours later, put the pieces of the wow. puzzle together. And five encounters with this deer in 26 hours before That's I incredible. That's so. some Jonathan Moreland shit going on there. Have you <laughs> watched that cool. guy's video? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like that's what it reminds me of. I yeah. think he had five with yeah. that deer too. Unbelievable. God, I'm still amazed. I mean, I sit and look at him and... Oh, sure. I mean, you can see the character. He's got three holes in the horn. He's got blades. He's got everything. I mean, it's just... If you could, you know, pick a quintessential, typical monarch to stare at. I mean, he's... As they say on Working Class Bow Hunter, show us your bothole. <laughs> and it's got some botholes. Yep. Dude... And I sent his teeth off. I got his teeth aged. Did you? Uh, yeah. Uh, results come back? Five and a half years old. Five and a half. Yeah. You know, there's no way for us to know this because everything's so different. But if there was any way, it would be so cool to know. What he would have been. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Would he have stayed typical? Well, well, Maybe. Right, right, Would exactly. He... I mean, you can already see his 
three or a four G four on this one started to grow a split. Yeah, that's the thing. Split I guess we're here, not really talking there. about here. This is a typical. Yeah. So we're talking about. We're basically talking about a deer that if it doesn't break off, it's flirting with the world record within like 10 inches. Yeah. That's insane it, to it think was, about. It was scary to sit with the BNC scorer that I had do it. And he said, this is the biggest deer I've got the chance to score. And he said, it's... Uh, as far as typical? Yeah. Okay. He said it... Um, and you didn't shoot the rack in half. No. <laughs> no. And the really cool part is the deer doesn't have mass. Like, he looks massive because his tines are so bladed. Everything is so yeah. thick. I'm but gonna, his tines aren't any thicker than his... I'm going to take a guess at the mass. Okay. Total mass. Yep. I'm going to say... I'm going to say 37 and three quarters inches. He's under, he's just like an eighth or two over 34. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got mass measurement. One, two, three, four. You're kidding me. But you want to know the funny he's part is? He's not even 35? No, he's not even 35 inches in mass. You know what his biggest mass measurement is? Take a guess. Uh... Five. Four and six eighths. You're kidding. His, both his bases, both sides, score four and six eighths. Now listen, this is where it's funny how much this deer could have been a potential mega giant. Both bases, four and six eighths. Second mass measurements, both sides, four and an eighth. Third mass measurements, four and two eighths, four and four eighths. The fourth mass measurement, Four and three eighths, four and two eighths. He only had three eighths deductions in mass. God. He like only a had a total of basically. seven and five eighths deductions. This deer almost would have netted 190. I mean, he ended up 187 and seven eighths. And at this point in time, the Kansas archery typical records, and I'm still waiting to get official declarations from KDWP as he sits right now I know of one other buck killed within two days of this buck that either he's going to become this number or I'm going to become this number but he sets as the number six typical kill in the state of Kansas that's incredible for dude. archery in Kansas yeah not on in, public ground on public ground <laughs> Dude. 26 hours after I saw him. I mean, it's just... That's it's incredible. A, and obviously, there's plenty of people. I mean, I've had a couple people on social media message me that one obviously sent me a picture. Another one told me he's got pictures of this deer but hasn't ever sent them. I mean, obviously, there's locals that know this deer existed. Yeah. Now, a deer like this doesn't go unnoticed. No. Nope, he and was how he's evaded people. He was stopping trucks in the middle of a bean or a Milo field. You yeah. bet your ass on that. But what uh, an incredible monarch of a buck. And the fun part was the very next day we went back to the public piece that I hunted before that. And uh, yeah, 
put a 170 plus incher in front of Gary at uh, 25 yards with five minutes of shooting light left and he couldn't see him through his peep. Mm. I remember texting with you a little bit after you killed him and specifically I remember you saying something along the lines of like we're on another big one gotta go getting yeah. out of the truck now or something <laughs> I'm like are you shitting me yeah it Dude. was it was a fun time I mean these last couple of years I mean you know I, I definitely am humbled I, I I'm the luckiest bow hunter on the face of the planet I do believe that I mean, luck plays into it, but you had to put yourself in position, man. And a lot of people probably would have made a lot of mistakes with that deer. And and maybe yeah. some guys would have killed him quicker. Maybe some guys wouldn't have killed him at all. But yep. you got a damn near 200-inch deer. I mean, you could say basically you killed a 200-inch deer. I mean, yeah. I can look at that thing and tell you that's a very significant point. That was broken, and uh, if it was short it wasn't like that, thin. <laughs> no, it's not thin. And if it was short like that, it's not breaking like it broke because of how long it is. That's yeah. That, there was you know, leverage you, there. To there break exactly that. what I was trying to get out. Yeah, there was leverage. Um, yeah. You got to have length to add that leverage in there. So, yeah. um, you know, I've seen one single deer in my life, a rack that my uncle bought um he claims he might have seen the deer locally or you know whatever but the fact of the matter is we have no idea where the hell that thing came from a buddy of mine killed this deer like i'm looking at a 197 inch deer that is just an absolute mega giant it's a typical 12 with two little kickers and yep i can't stop looking at it you know the crazy part is when I was talking to the score, you know, I didn't tell him anything, you know, what I planned to do with this deer, what, you know, opportunities there were for anything. And he, he's a good friend of mine and he scored all of my deer and is a great hunter himself. And we got to exchange a lot of, you know, camaraderie together while he was scoring this. And I said, how long do you think that time was? And he said the same thing. He said, there was leverage there. He said, I'm guessing that was probably a four, five, six inch split. Oh, yeah. He said, because you don't break as thick as where that's broke, too. I mean, right. it's over an inch in diameter. It looks like a pretzel when you break a pretzel and it doesn't, it's not broken flush. Yeah. It's broken off the top. Um, yeah. And that's he said the same thing. Incredible. He goes, but. He goes, honestly, it still scores an inch and an eighth broke. Right. He goes, you probably broke another four or five inches off that, and it would have hurt you in, yeah. the, in the net mass <laughs> measurements. So be glad that it wasn't there. And I'm like, I'd rather have had it there because nets are for fish. I don't really care. Yeah. But Exactly. I'm yeah, going to get my two hundo and, and go. Yeah. But so. I'll take a 197. <laughs> I'll take one of those. You know, I killed that deer in 20 and killed a... 180, I think he was 183. Oh, I'm drawing a blank now, but he netted 173 and an eighth non-typical. Was that a Kansas buck as well? Yep. Now, was that public as well, or was that That private? was private. That was private. Okay, but that was a buddy's was, place, right? That was the farmer that I hunt on oh. and have always hunted on. Okay. I've killed. So that buck in particular, 
Um, I killed 165 inches of deer there in 2012. Okay. It died under the tree that I shot that 186 out of. Jeezel. That 186 died under the tree that I shot the 165 out of. Um, and I got everything on video except the shot, obviously, of that one. Because like an idiot, I turned the camera in the wrong direction in a fluster. But uh, that's why I say I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Because I killed a 165 out of there the very first day I hunted him. I killed a 186 out of there the very first evening I hunted him. Jeezel. And I've killed a 197 on public that I hunted for 26 hours. I don't know where the rabbit's foot is that I'm carrying around, but I hope I never lose it. <laughs> you can leave it here. <laughs> I'll take one of those. God, dude. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty badass story with a badass deer, dude. I'm pumped for you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited to hear you speak at the expo and uh, play around with a little archery with Hunter. Yeah, yeah, we're excited for that. We've been kind of spitballing in our brain. You know, we may... If the listeners listen to this podcast and follow along, we uh, we may have a few things for people to gawk and touch and feel when we come there. We may. Good God. You talk about a freaking trophy wall. <laughs> Hunter killed a thousand inches of antler. Yeah. On public land in a year. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I killed most of it before November. And, and be, yeah, before November with a bow. Yep. Right? Everything's All archery. All archery. Freaking incredible. That mule deer he shot from about three miles away <laughs> in a like 90, Katrina crosswind. 94 yards, I think, is the... Oh, that may have been the one he killed the year before. It's the one Matthews shared. Yeah, was, that one was 80, 85 or 86. I mean, both of them were right at 90-yard shots, give or take a few yards. Man, I tell you what, that ups your odds a little bit when you yep. can shoot that. When you can extend your in range. A crosswind. Mm -hmm. What did he have? Like a twenty-plus mile an hour crosswind. Yeah, it was like fifteen or twenty. God. That's and what's amazing. weird is, you know, he he still put a good ethical shot on it, but we practice so much and do all that wind testing, and obviously, no matter what you test, the conditions are different. You know, sure. the wind's cutting different depending on where you sure. are, or whatever. And so he held off based on kind of what we knew you needed to hold off, and it still didn't drift as far as he thought it was going to drift. Oh, wow. So, but when you're putting a two-inch-plus cut through something, I mean, I don't know. It's pretty cool. So we're, we're excited for the expo. I think it's going to be yeah. a, a lot of fun. We're, you know, we do a lot of this, and we're excited to share – some tips and tricks and techniques and things, tunes, stuff that we look at, you know, hunting and archery is such a, it's a unique pastime, right? I mean, I agree. I can hand numerous people a gun and you can be successful. Sure. But it's really hard for archers. There's so many more variables, especially even traditional archers. I mean, come on, that's right. even more limited, but no, thank you. Yeah, it's just there's so much out there that maybe gets missed or overlooked or not thought of. Oh, 100%, man. But what do you, okay, what do you think is the most overlooked thing with archery with bow hunters? 100% of the time, it's the tuning. Okay. I really believe there's, 
I say that's the most overlooked. It's the most underappreciated, in my opinion, because the typical bow hunter is a 30-yard and in guy. Yep. You can take the most untuned bow, untuned broadheads at 30 yards, and people have that traditional pie plate mentality. If I Did can keep it, it in a pie plate, <laughs> I'm good. Yep. But it, it's when you understand the tune and you understand the performance of that tool in your hand, that bow, it can change the game for you as a hunter. Yes, sir. It can take a guy that's, or a gal, or a kid that is a 20-yard or a 30-yard max guy and all of a sudden be a 40-yard or a 50-yard max. And how many times have we been in a situation where, man, if I could have just shot 10 more yards, yeah, how many more animals could you have harvested? I always tell people, one of my sort of sayings, I guess, is it's tough enough to get the animal where you need them. Yep. You never want to have to question, once you do your job, yep. can you kill it? Can you make a shot? Um, and for years, I remember um, I would have like the basic tune at the archery shop, but uh, mm -hmm. aside from that, nothing. Didn't know anything about tuning arrows, nothing like that. And I remember I would have numbered arrows and... I'd basically be sighted in for one arrow, and I was pretty much shit out of luck if I had to shoot the other one. Like, right. that was like a follow-up shot arrow. And um, hopefully it's 10 yards. I'm standing over the top yeah, of him. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I shot the three-blade muzzies, and I'll never forget watching the Gritty Bowman where Aaron Snyder interviewed Tim Gillingham, and he's like, yeah, I don't number my arrows. I have 12 perfect arrows and I was like mm -hmm. wait sir what are you talking about what is this wizardry you speak of yeah. <laughs> and he really inspired me to start building my own arrows to start building my own arrows and that got me into the whole competition thing and everything and I'm like damn that's crazy how that transpired but I will not forget one of the things I think is very overlooked which I guess you could probably say is a part of the tune but those axis adjustments, oh, I, yeah. I don't think most bow hunters know what the hell that is. They're no. level. They're like, oh, well, my, my bubble's level. And I'm like, well, well no, wait a minute. Matter. <laughs> Did you adjust all that? Is it set yeah. up right? And they're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't just bolt on and work. So let me answer <laughs> for you. No, yeah. you are not level when that bubble is in the middle now. Yep. I yeah. can guarantee you. I think part of it too, and you know, we hope to not necessarily debunk, but we hope to broaden some ideas from expo attendees is that, you know, understanding your equipment, understanding your capabilities, how to increase those. And on top of that, there's so much knowledge being spit out there, discerning what is good, what is bad what matters to you, what doesn't matter to you. I mean, social media and information at our fingertips is a double-edged sword. Sure. Because I'm definitely not going to sit here and say I'm the end-all, be-all, or I'm the, you know, uh, don't listen to me. I'm, I'm not Gandhi. I don't know everything about everything. But 
there's a whole lot of people spitting a whole lot of knowledge at times on social media that be careful who you pick. Sure. You know, that I hope that, you know, people can learn, you know, I learn a lot from Tim, Tim Gillingham. There's probably not one guy in the industry that has tried, does try, or plays with more crap than that guy. That dude. He's a tester. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is, and I fall into his category, he's a 33 and a half inch draw. Yeah. I'm a 32 and a half target archer. I'm a 32 inch hunter. I shoot a half inch shorter just to make sure I can get the bow back. Don't sure. have to worry about clothing, all the rest of that stuff. People don't think about that. Yep. And we do things to arrows at our draw length that you don't. Right. Or that a lady at 26 inches doesn't. Right. And people don't understand all that, that, you know, every bow is different. Every arrow is different. Every combination is different. And all of it is affected so much by the archer. And, you know, oh, only use this broadhead. Only use these arrows. Only shoot this bow. No. Right. There's a ton of equipment out there. It's setting it up for you, by you. Yep. I don't know how many archery shops I've been in, and I'm an archery shop promoter. I think that they are the quintessential piece of the archery world. I mean, there, a lot of them are local. A lot of them are family-owned. Really need to support them. But we also got to understand that a lot of them are a business, and they push a lot of stuff out in a hurry. And it's maybe not correct maybe not exactly what you need and just having enough knowledge or getting enough knowledge whether it be from the archer shop or from somebody on social media or a friend or whatever picking and choosing what's the right knowledge and how to utilize it to make you better because at the end of the day it's just about getting you outside spending time hunting yeah. enjoying it and like you said not going to the woods with one arrow, knowing that this is the only chance I got. Go to the woods with a quiver full of arrows, whether it's two, three, six, ten, whatever, and know that when you get there, I know what my max yardage is, I know how to make this shot, and I can do it. And, yep. and having the confidence to do it. So, Man, that confidence, it's everything. Absolutely. It's insane. Well, brother, I appreciate you uh, coming on here so I probably should have prepped you for this beforehand. Yep. And Rick and Josh are going to yell at me for not doing it. But I have a question that I like to ask people, especially deer hunters. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite thing when it comes to, you know, hunting, archery, mm -hmm. whatever, that you learned in the last year or so? A big tip oh. you picked up, anything, something that just... Maybe just melted your mind or something. Thermals. Thermals? Uh, I've always known thermals. I've always understood how thermals work or how they're supposed to work. Um, but man, being in the mountainous, hilly, <laughs> deep wood country, I've learned so much over the last couple years um, and let me preface this. I've always been a public land hunter, but I've never been a deep public land hunter. I was always the guy that hunted a lot of private ground and I always hunted public 
where it was good, easy access. Okay. I've now gotten to where if I'm not two miles from the truck, I'm probably still moving to where I'm trying to get to. And okay. I've learned that there's a benefit to getting far away. Sure. But I've learned that in doing that, you create a lot of disturbance to get there, as well as what it was doing at the truck versus what it's doing when you get there versus <laughs> what it's doing on this side of the hill versus what direction this hill lays versus how the wind's cutting. There's so many things that if people dive into the thermal gain, yep, I think it's the number one piece that's misunderstood that will make you more effective and successful. I'm not going to say when the rut is on, you can almost throw caution to the wind at certain times and people sure. can drink a six pack of beer, smoke a pile of cigarettes and never take a shower and be soaked in diesel fuel and kill a 197 inch deer. Sure. But when the pressure's on, when the deer are skittish, when the conditions are wrong, when everything is played against you, but you understand the thermal gain, you can get in there and be successful. I agree. Um, it's incredible to learn about them with the, the streams, the waterways, ditches, and then when you're in those steeper hills and you feel, I mean, it's literally a breeze. If you're facing downhill, it is a stiff breeze on the back of your neck when that thermal switch happens in the evening. Yep. And, and then 10 or 15 minutes later, oh, here come the deer. Yep. Well, <laughs> it's and it's amazing. I've learned even, and, you know, we all don't always want to share our most, some of our prize knowledge, whatever knowledge, but. Can't give it all away for free. I have learned something even deeper than that because I've, I have realized now that based on foliage, based on type of trees, based on type of floor surface that's there, that it makes, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but I've been watching these things now that I've been diving in this game and what the thermals do in hard oaks versus what they do in junipers and conifers versus what they do. Oh, yeah. It's all different. There's a thermal cover, mm -hmm. you know, like in those uh, coniferous yep. thickets and stuff that I'll bet it's warmer. Yeah. It affects things way differently. 100% agree. That's like, yep. that to me sounds just like Beaumartonic talking about sitting over a stream and having the cool water pull his scent down to a pond that mm -hmm. is warmer. And then your scent goes straight up into the air and it's like better than any scent killer out there, right? Oh, yeah. So, um that's yeah, good I'm stuff. A, I'm a proponent of, you know, as scentless as possible and as minimalist as possible. Leaving less trace is the best, you know, like we talked about with killing this deer. But sure. at the end of the day, you can put all that aside. And if you can figure the thermals out for that area, you can end that, like you said, first hour of the morning, last hour of the evening, the gap in between there's certain times that you can put that into play and you know i killed that deer before this 186 incher had a seven mile an hour wind blowing 
northeast out of the southwest. Okay. And that deer that I killed was directly downwind, but all of my thermals were pulling to the west. Nice. What so, were you using to do that? What terrain feature? It was where I was with the sun setting okay. and where the thermal cover was on the edge that I was hunting. <laughs> it was pulling everything towards the sun. Wow. Whereas the thermal cover was blocking my wind, but he was still downwind when I shot him. And I shot Dude. him at 12 yards. That's cool as hell. I mean, and it was all, and I had three bucks in a row, him and two other 140, 150-inch shooters come right behind him, and none of them smelt me. So what you're hearing, guys, is go sit in a tree with Josh Trollinger in Kansas. Just make sure I have my lucky rabbit's foot with me. My lucky rat's tail. Yeah. All righty. Well, brother, let's go ahead and close this out. Uh, I appreciate you coming on here and telling the story and nerding out a little bit when it comes to archery and thermals and all that. And, appreciate uh, you having me. I really look forward to hearing you speak. Yeah. Um, Look forward yeah. to meeting everybody at the expo and yeah. hope the listeners enjoyed. That's going to be badass, dude. Well, guys, this has been Fueled by the Outdoors, and I've been your host, Chris Leppert, and tonight we were joined by Josh Trollinger. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.